What's up, everybody? Welcome to a brand spanking new episode of Write Who You Know. I'm Matt Hausfetter, and this is the Screenwriting Podcast. It's the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. Man, sorry it's been a minute since we've done one of these with Thanksgiving and the holidays and just being able to book people in their schedules. Uh, it takes a lot to make these. Uh, so a big thank you to the people that are helping me, including my producer, Michael, and Simon, who just did this episode with me for making it work. Uh Man, I know, you know, a lot of people have been asking me, Matt, what, what's up with you? You need to tell us more about your career, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, fine, sure. Um, so excitingly enough, right before the break, I was able to sell a show uh, with a comedian friend of mine that we've been working on for about a year in development. Uh, it's very exciting. Uh, it's a hard R family comedy that takes place in Kentucky. I won't say more. Um, but I'm very excited about it, and uh, we sold it in the Zoom, which, if you know how difficult that is, uh, it is a triumph, and it's got me kind of feeling like daddy's back. I'm back in the building, baby. Uh, all it takes is one yes. That's what I always tell people. You're going to hear a thousand no's, but you just need one yes. Uh, let's get to who we're talking about today, Simon Rasiopa. I'm so excited to have him on the podcast. We made friends when I was... Uh, developing and producing and doing Fairfax at Amazon. He is the showrunner of Invincible, which is the mega hit successful uh, adult animated series on Amazon that is based on the comic by Robert Kirkman. He is also the man behind The Boys Presents Diabolical. He has also worked on, written on shows like George of the Jungle, The Dark Crystal, Fang Bone. Oh man, rated A for awesome. Me and my monsters, Spliced, Grossology, he has worked on so many shows. Donkey Kong Country. I mean, this man has worked on so many shows. His IMDb is honestly intimidating. And uh, I feel so incredibly lucky that I was able to get him on this podcast to make a cocktail for him. He's an old-fashioned guy. Uh, and we get into breaking down his career, which is really exciting because it starts in Canada. And he tells you how he made his way all the way to L.A. So without further ado, here's my kick-ass interview with kick-ass showrunner, writer, producer, extraordinaire, Simon Rasiopa. Pass. Nope. We love Matt. It's just a really hard time right now. The industry's contracting. Come back to us and give some bigger attachments. Tell them right what you know. No, tell them right who you know. Do you remember the first thing growing up where, you know, for me, it was like Karate Kid was one of the first things or Ninja Turtles. Like, what were some of the first things media wise that you saw that might have made you be like, oh, my God, like movies and TV are everything? Uh, I had a weird I have a, maybe a slightly different kind of story about that. Please. Um, so when I was growing up, I was a big uh, maybe you could tell just by the way I look uh, into Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy books and sci fi books and stuff like that. So like pulpy paperbacks. Uh, I still have a collection of like 400 of them in a, like a storage container in Toronto. Well, because I used to buy the library up the street, used to sell them for like 50 cents when the covers were like torn and stuff. They were getting them off the shelf. So I would just buy them for like yep. a quarter or, you know, not much. So I still have like so many of these great old pulpy books from like the 70s and 80s and stuff. Um, so I wanted to be a writer. I want to be like, a, but like a novelist. So you knew early on. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be like a, like a science fiction or fantasy author. Uh, based on like reading D and D and the yeah. stuff you were reading at the library. Like, yeah. were you into comics at an early age? Too? Yeah, comics too. But for some reason it was, it was still the novel. It was like, when I say novel, I mean like the, the paperback, you know, the pocket yeah. size pocket. Totally. Books. Uh, 
kind of sci-fi you stuff. You stick so. in your back pocket. You yeah. Bring, yeah. But a lot of like I'm not. It's not trashy stuff necessarily. I mean, some of it was, but like, was like Harry Harrison who wrote like Soylent Green and like you know uh, a, a lot of other really classic like Westworld. I uh, know uh, Westworld was Brian Aldiss, I think maybe. But like there were great science fiction authors in those books. Yeah. So I started reading all those. So that's what I wanted to do was write science fiction stories and like novels and maybe do like Dungeons and Dragons modules and stuff like this. That would be cool. And then it was grade. I'm going to say grade nine, nine or 10, my older sister, who's about seven years older than me, started dating a television producer in Toronto. And he worked on uh, the show called Breakfast Television, which was like our version, Toronto's version of like, uh, like what's what's an AM, like a live AM show. Like Good Morning America. Yeah, like Good Morning like America. Good Day like, LA. Yeah, yeah. Good okay. day, but smaller budget. Yeah. It was like a two-hour-long show, and they would. I'll get through this really quickly. But they're two-hour-long no, show. No, Simon, no rush. You take you take us through <laughs> Good Day and Ellie. You take us through how a, a show like this works, please. Well, just it was like you know, it's two hours long, uh, studio segments, but all live, and then they do uh, remote segments, and the remote segment team would be like you know, at the zoo today because the zoo's unveiling a new animal or like, you know, at this like Olympic gala in the morning where the Olympic athletes are chosen for the team and they'd hop around the city doing sort of live events. And he produced those segments. So when I was like 14, I guess I would have been 13 or 14 because I couldn't drive. Uh, he was like, do you want to come along and see how we make TV? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So uh, I went along with him and I saw them produce like these live segments out at like, again, like the zoo and then at the theme park and stuff like this. And I was just like, this, this is what I want to do. This is fun. Like you're getting into places at like five in the morning. That wasn't the best part, but it was cool because they're- Yeah, like, you, no you have there. a place yourself. Have placed yourself, treated like royalty because they'd always be like, here's free passes if you come back. You'd set up this cool gear, plug in cameras and stuff like that. And then you do a live television hit. And we do like a hit every, like a five minute hit every like 20 minutes for two hours. Then you pack all the stuff up and, and drive home. And I was just like this, TV, this is fun. This is what I want to do. Like I kind of still want to write, but like this is awesome and this is amazing. So I just started working at the same station, volunteering at first for years. Like they, in high school. Yeah. Well, so what happened? Well, what happened is uh, uh, they couldn't hire me because I was too young. But some of the other uh, PAs and TAs, like technical assistants and production assistants, would be like, "I want to take today off. You, you want to come in and I'll just give you like fifty bucks." And I'd be like, "Yeah, I'll do it." And of course, they were getting paid more than that. <laughs> but they would pay me fifty bucks, and everyone because we were the remote crew. And the crew was like three people. Three and four at 14, people. 50 bucks, you're like, I'm rich. Oh, yeah, it was the best. I would come in and I'd do their job, which was mostly, by the way, like coiling cables, hauling cables. It was a lot of cable. I can coil a cable. Me too. Like nobody's <laughs> business still. Like it's all my muscle memory. You must be good with a hose. Really good with a hose. Like <laughs> anything long and yeah. tubular, you know, that needs to be arranged in a very particular good, yeah. good way. Like you, I can do that. Do you yacht or boat? Because I feel like that could be applied to. I do not. But if anybody's looking for someone to just like <laughs> coil ropes, this this is the guy to come to. Uh, anyway, so I, I thought that was awesome. And I started doing live TV and I did live TV with that station uh, for quite a while, which was a station called City TV in Toronto. And it was awesome. It was fun. And then I turned 16 and they could actually pay me properly. Uh, and then I went to uh, Ryerson University in Toronto for film and television and started doing that. And then I started realizing that narrative was also really fun. And also that I started to see that like live TV also kind of topped out not even money, but just like you were always making somebody else's thing. I, I did a lot of sports television too, like golf and stuff like that. You can make good money, but you're like, 
you know, you were still just pulling cables, setting up cameras and stuff like this. And I still loved the science fiction books and movies and things like that. Uh, And I was like, oh, maybe I could still do TV, but maybe I could do like the more the writing side of things. So I started specializing in that in university, like in these, because it was a radio and film program and you direct and you'd write, but then you could sort of steer yourself a little bit and started uh, writing scripts there. You know? Did you have like a particular teacher that like sort of, you know, like I'm imagining Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting. Was there someone that was like instrumental in your first, you know, step or two into writing narrative? I wish there was. No, uh, there wasn't really because a lot of the professors, there were great people, but a lot of them were like teaching much later in life mm. and didn't have like, certainly they weren't writing on like current shows yeah. at the time. The atmosphere of the place was great, though, because everybody else was young. Everyone was shooting their own stuff. Like, you could take cameras out and, like, shoot stuff, and then you could get edit suite time. Maybe it was at 3 a.m. Were you guys using, like, a Steam back at the time? Oh, my God. We So we started, we were shooting on Betacam. And, wow. you know, Betacams are, like, these massive yes. cameras. I was, when I got there, and this is my age, we were just getting into nonlinear editing. So my first couple things that I shot there, uh, we cut them in an A-B roll suite which is where you had like three machines and you could cut from like deck, like beta cam to beta cam to your master, right? So, yes. you, could, so you do transitions and stuff on the fly. The decks, you you program your in points, your out points. Yes, that, we had something like that in in, um, in high school. Before, I, like at Boston University, we had to like learn how to use the Steam back. I was like, why? But the first thing I ever learned on was like the VCR, VCR to VCR, in point, out point onto yeah. the master. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we we also had to do, I think, one year, the very first year I was there, it was the last time this was ever done, was splicing audio tape. Oh, real, reel-to-reel no. audio, where you mark it with a grease pencil, Holy shit. cut it with a razor blade, tape it back up together. They had us, like, recutting, like, a politician speech. I don't remember whose speech it was. You had to cut it. You got marked in it, and then we finished that, and they're like, great, you're never going to have to ever do this again in your career. But it taught you editing in a really physical kind of way because you were had all these bits of tape yeah. with like words on them that you had to reassemble and splice back together and get spots right and you scrub the reel to reel. But like, I mean, like even then they were like, and now there's a way to do this digitally for audio. And then like a couple of years later, it was like, now we have digital video editing in the school too. So in those four years, I went from like cutting with a razor blade to digital <laughs> editing even if it was still pretty like early digital editing where it's like there wasn't a lot of storage. It took forever still, but it was still cool. You're like, yeah. oh, this is nonlinear editing. This is where what everything is going to be in like another couple of years. So you graduate Ryerson and you, had you like written a script of like a fully, you know, like a like an episode of TV or even like a full, like a short story? Like what, what do you remember? Like what was like the first, you know, the first few things even up to like recently that I have written like not so great. So, um, you know, when you're young, it's just like, I need to finish this thing just to like know that I can do that. And so I'm curious what, what might've been one of the first or second things that you ever, you know, sat down and completed. So I actually wrote a script in high school Oh my! God. that was, no, hold on. Let me, let me, let me, cause writing is a really, it's a really generous use of the word, right? <laughs> uh, so it was when I'd started doing TV, but before I went to university, I was like, but I could write movie scripts or something like that. That could be great. I didn't really have access to any of those because this was like pre, either bulletin boards, but there wasn't yeah. like the internet per yeah. se, right? So I took a sci-fi book that I really loved, which was this one called The Stainless Steel Rat is Born by Harry Harrison, who I mentioned before. And I transcribed it into a script, into a screenplay format. 
which basically meant like I just opened the book and like just wrote the dialogue from the book and in the center of the page yeah. and the descriptions of what happened on the side, like almost copy and pasting, but like a little bit of my own stuff, but mostly copy and pasting. That was the first thing I ever That's so funny. Wrote. The first thing that I ever wrote, I did the same exact thing with this Brady Sinalis book, Lesson Zero, where I was like- Oh, much classier than me. No, like, I just, like, I, it was, I was just like, wow, you can write about like sex and cocaine. Like that's so cool. And so it was exactly exactly what you're talking about where it's like, all the same dialogue didn't change much. Description was the description and, you know, just, just in a different format. Well, it makes me think too, I don't know if you've ever seen this. I think there was a, an interview or a book about, um, uh, you know, gonzo journalism. Oh, what's his name? Uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Thompson. Where he talked about, I think he learned to write novels by retyping novels he loved. Interesting. On like a typewriter, like just opening the book and then writing exactly, just transcribing from page to page, not changing anything, just retyping it. And he was saying that there was something about having the words go through you that taught him to write. Uh, just the fact of like having to look at them, having to retype them, having to, to bring them in his eyes, think yeah. about them a little bit and then spit them back out on his hands. Even if you didn't change anything, it made him look at the book in a different way and learn more from it. So- so maybe there is a benefit to doing that. Yeah, I, I feel like like reading comprehension is kind of a lot of that. It's like, what am I reading? What what? How does my brain process it? And then boom, how do I put that back on the page? Even if you're just transcribing, is probably incredibly helpful to you as a you know a young writer. Yeah, I mean, like one thing I tell all new writers, you know, I'm sure you talk to new writers all the time. Yeah. People want to take you over coffee and stuff, which is great. I try to do it all the time if I can. Is I'm like I'd be surprised by how many don't read scripts. Yeah. Or don't read, in my opinion, enough scripts. Yeah. And I'm sort of like, how can you learn to do the job if you're not... Like, watching movies, yes, absolutely. But when you're writing a script, you're not making a movie. You're writing a script. The yeah. script is your final form, yep. unless you're directing. It's that finished screenplay. It's that, like, you know, 110 pages or 120 pages, if it's a feature. Um, that's the currency of the writer in Hollywood, and you have to do that. Yeah. So how are you going to do that if you don't read other versions of that that other people professionally are doing? Uh, and I think that's more important in some ways than seeing the finished product, seeing the film. Because you're not making the finished product, you're making the script. Absolutely. Yeah, the first, the, the first, you know, the first time I really started reading scripts was as an assistant at Paramount. And like after you read, you started, there's like a rhythm and a flow and you understand there's like buttons to scene and transitions to the next scenes. And there's really a rhythm and a cadence to it. And until you read that, you know, it's sort of... Eh, there's no way that you would know, like you say, because you're not making a movie. That's such a great way to put it. Yeah, and also script style changes. I'm sure you notice in the time you've been in your career, <clears throat> certainly in the time I've been in mine, uh, the way people wrote scripts 20 years ago is different than how they write them now. Yeah. I'm sure in another 20 years it's going to be different than than now. Like, obviously, you can if you read, like, Aliens, you know, Cameron's script, which I think is one of the best action horror movies ever written. I should read that. I've I've never read it. It is, I mean, it's excellent. The first one or Aliens, the sequel? I'm, gonna, I'm talking about the second. Okay. I mean, the first one's also excellent. Okay. I haven't read the script for the first one, but the second one, uh, Aliens, with a, you know, the S, yep. the dollar sign. Yep. Um, uh, the script is great on the, you know, it's just, it's such a good story. And like that third act of that is just, inc I think it's one of the best third acts in modern movie history. Um, but the script's written kind of, kind of description-y. People call it like a D&D &D script in little ways where it's like, you know, the room is like this. It's about this big. This, this is like big blocks of, of description and then dialogue and then big blocks of description. I should check that out. That sounds great. It doesn't hurt it, but that's not how you write a script today. Yeah. You know, so you can learn a lot from reading that script, but to learn how to write it in a more literary style, which, which is what I think most people write in today and what looks good on the page, 
Um, and also Cameron was writing it, you know, for himself at that point too. Uh, but to write nowadays, you need to read modern script. You need to read how scripts are written today. And then also interpret that with your own style, your own voice and put, you know, your vo yourself on the page, but in a way that looks like what other people are doing, you know, yeah. but like you, you've got to be with the times and you can't do that unless you're reading scripts. Unless totally. You're reading material. I've, and I could be wrong, but I feel like Shane Black and Lethal Weapon sort of brought that uh, that style of like i'm going to entertain you even in the mm -hmm. uh the slug lines of this or even in the action lines it doesn't even have to be dialogue and i feel like that really set the tone in the 80s for you know the modern action uh movie that we know and love yeah i think he was he changed things yeah. significantly but but also like i kind of agree with him like i think this is again the transition of a script from a blueprint to a piece of literature on its own i think that's what we've sort of seen and maybe it'll go back, I don't know. But right now, I think a script should be as entertaining to read totally. as the movie will be to watch. And if you're writing a comedy, try and put some jokes in the action. You know, <laughs> the, Like, make it funny to read. You're like, you're trying to sell something that's entertaining, so why not make it as entertaining as you can? Yeah, and can they probably it. have a stack of scripts. So, like, keep me invested in reading in the one that you wrote. You know? Yeah, guaranteed, whoever you're giving that script to has another 22 to read that weekend minimum right and they're going to look at your script and if like it's funny in the first couple page if it's a comedy and it's funny in the first couple pages or it's engaging or does something kind of interesting you know they're going to keep reading and if it's like the same as everything else or reads like a script from 20 years ago and you know that's and you're not doing it for a stunt or for a good reason then they're kind of probably not going to finish simon after college <clears throat> you know you want to be a writer what is your first move after like i've experienced live television i've learned how to edit sort of not sort of, but like in this way that may be archaic, but will help me in the future. Mm -hmm. Like what, what does a, a man like yourself in Toronto do next to sort of, you know, get the ball rolling? I mean, other than get extremely lucky. Uh, so, so the Canadian television scene, the Canadian movie scene is very different than the LA scene, much smaller. Uh, we don't do a lot of things that are done down here in the sense of like, I think probably we've done in total, like probably 20 sitcoms in all of Canadian history, huh. you know, maybe more than that. But like, there's, there's, if you want to write a sitcom in Canada, like it's, you're just, there's no sitcoms, you know, maybe you, there have been sitcoms. Maybe you could pitch one and try and get one off the ground and make one. But it's not like you're like, I, I like multicam. So I'm going to write multicam. There's no multicams. We yeah. just, we just don't really don't do that. You know, so you have to sort of pick, if you want to write scripts and get paid to do it. There's certain areas, like we do a lot of cop shows. We do a lot of doctor lawyer shows. For a while, we did a lot of like mid-level sci-fi, you know, like Orphan Black and like Dark Matter and like a couple other shows like that. Lex was a really classic one when I was growing up. Uh, and we do a lot of animation and kids shows, kids stuff. So at the time, uh, I think I was, because I'd been watching the Max and like MTV had this really great adult animated block. Yeah, like Aeon Flux was Aeon also. Flux, exactly. And I was like, that's cool, man. That stuff seems subversive, seems kind of different. We also kind of do some animation in here. Maybe I could do something like that. So I started writing, uh, not that basically, but I started writing uh, half hour spec animated samples. And in our last year of school, uh, we had to get, you had to write, you had to create a show. You had to create an original show uh, and uh, get it adjudicated. Get it. Mar Your mark came from an outside writer. You had to find an outside writer, someone who was a professional. They would mark your work, and that would be your mark in the class, or at least half of it. <clears throat> wow. And the real reason the school did that was to force you to cold call people and contact other writers and sort of like force you to kind of like, you know, get 
get out there and sort of just like try and meet people and stuff like that in the business, which by the way, was a great idea. Yeah. That's honestly what's so incredibly smart. I wish, I wish they, they did that where I went. I, I just, that's so, uh, so that, like that actually you can apply in life. Yeah. And it was easy. So <clears throat> sorry, it wasn't easy, but you weren't asking for a job. You were like, Hey, I'm a, you know, I'm in my third year of university. I think it was third year. Actually, this was in, uh, I'm not asking for a job or anything. All I'm asking you to do is like read my script and then here's a page and the school provided this. If we were like, basically it was just like five categories. They marked everything out of five. So it, it would take two seconds. And if they wanted to write comments, they could write comments. So is the, the, what we were asking that writer, that person to do wasn't a lot. It was, they had to read the script and then the marking process was actually pretty, pretty small yeah. and stuff like that. So, uh, I managed to find this writer who had done some animation in Canada, this guy, Pete Souter. And sent him my script and my show idea and stuff like that. Uh, and then uh, ended up, he, he was like, okay, great. Well, why don't you come in and we'll just like have lunch and stuff and I'll tell you about it. Came in and he'd covered it in sticky notes and marked the whole thing up, which at the first time was like also terrifying, but also the best thing he could possibly do. Yeah. It was like, he's like, it's pretty good. You should do another draft, you know, and gave me great feedback. And I did a second draft of that and I wrote another spec uh, show for him and he was like, this one's even better. He's like, I'm going to hand this around to a couple people. And then nothing happened for a year. How old are you at this point? Like 19, 20, 21? This would be like 20, okay. I think. So this was third year. And then my fourth year, uh, I got an email because we just got an email uh, from this woman who was like, hey, Pete get, got me your sample, but I didn't get a chance to read it till now. Uh, do you want to come work on the show with me? And do and, and this show, have you, okay, so maybe you're familiar with these two Italian brothers uh, they run a plumbing business. Mario and Luigi. Yeah, exactly. And so for a long time, they have, there's an, an antagonist that, you know. Bowser. Different one. Donkey Kong? Donkey, yeah, Donkey Kong. Okay. Uh, there was a TV series called Donkey Kong Country based on the N64 game. Wow. And okay, she, now I know what time of, now I yes, know what yeah, you were in. Exactly. Okay. So this would have been, this was like 1998, mm-hmm. 99, maybe 99. And she was working on the first, it was one of the first like 3D animated things ever. And she was like, do you want to come work on the show and like do a script? And I was like, yes. Oh my God. And that's how I get my first gig. Holy shit, Simon. Wow. Writing Donkey Kong lines. Did you feel like, oh my God, I've, I've arrived. Oh yeah. I remember the time being like, even if I just get one, even if they're like, I never get another show ever again, if I just get one script, then it's like, it's like all my dreams have come true. <laughs> so... Did you see the new Mario movie? I did. Yes. What are, What are your thoughts? You can be totally candid. I have thoughts. You have thoughts. I think it's a pretty. It was a pretty fun movie. I mean, like you know, I, I think, you know, I think there's other license. Like I think the Lego movie was a better Lego movie than the Mario movie was a Mario yeah. movie. But also, it was people loved it. Like it made a billion dollars. It, was I, fun. it totally made a bazillion dollars. I felt like it was the greatest hits of Mario. I'm the biggest Mario fan nerd ever. Uh and the one, there were two things where I was like, eh? when they took off their gloves, I don't know if you remember that, where I was like Mario and Luigi had human hands, which like, yeah, sure, I can imagine that. It just was like total, it was very right. jarring to me. And that it started and ended in like actual New York. Like the concept that they just like don't live in the mushroom kingdom, like kind of blew my mind in a weird way. I was like, that's a, that's a, that's totally a choice. Like it doesn't not work, but I, I had never imagined them being anywhere else except in this like magical place of Koopa Troopas and You know what it was for me? Was the family. Like I was like, wait, are they not adults? Yeah. Are they kind of adults? They're kind of, but they're kind of not. Like, how old were they supposed to be in the movie? Yeah, it was like an Annie Hall dinner scene. Yeah. You know, you know, and it was so like over the top funny, just like Mamma me 
you know, like it, with the voice, it just, I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved it. But there were parts of it where I was like, what an interesting way to like interpret Mario, like having yeah. a family and, you know, being yelled at by his dad. I guess stuff. I would have like, that's a big part of Italian culture. I would have been fine if they like went to their parents' house to have dinner. But I thought it was weird that they also like lived there and had their own rooms. And, and a Nintendo. And Well, yeah, of course. And we're like kind of teenagers, yeah. but kind of not teenagers. So yeah. I don't know. But ultimately, like, like it was it was fine. I don't think it was, again, I think the Lego movie blew me away. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, like, this is probably the best Lego movie you could make. It was incredible. Um, yeah, the Barbie movie is probably, the, I think, again, the best Barbie movie yeah. I could imagine. Yeah. Uh, the Mario movie was fine. You know? Did you see Lego Batman? I don't think I did. I think I started to. But yeah, I I loved it. Yeah. I was I'm curious to see if you do. Well, I think it's on HBO Max or whatever they call it now. I just thought it was so funny that they took the piss out of Batman so bad and in right. such a way where it's like, how do you make any Batman movie after that? I just my I, I applaud them so much for just like leaning into the irreverence the same way that Barbie did, you know, in a big yeah. way where it's like, let's. Let's poke fun and be self-referential and be like a love letter to itself. Yeah, and have something to say and just yeah, exactly right. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was fine. It was okay. fine. Did okay, so you, so back to you though. So you're writing on Mario Donkey Kong. Yes, living the life. Like, no Mario, just Donkey. Okay, just, just Donkey but, Kong. But, but like Donkey all, Kong Country. All, all the Kongs. Was Diddy Kong in that Diddy one? Diddy Kong was in that. All Cranky the time? Kong. Cranky Kong. What's the snowboarding stoner guy's name? I'm oh, forgetting his uh, name. He's he, in the video game. With the glasses. Yes, uh, Funky Kong. Funky Kong was there. Um, oh, awesome. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's in the movie. He has a yeah. small cameo. He's in the movie. Uh, oh, uh, what's the uh, little uh, the girl Kong? Um, with Candy the hair? Candy Kong. Candy Kong was there. Oh no, there's two because there's like the more the adult and this. Yeah, and the, yeah. So all those and it was early CG, so there was so many limitations on what you could show or what you could do. Yeah, how does that? How did that work? Like in terms of like, for example, in a 2D animation. I mean, for those of you that don't know, there's. You know, take one and two and three and animatics and one and two yeah. and three. So how does it work when it's like 3D rendered? Like, what are you looking at? Well, this was, this was like way early stuff. Like characters couldn't pick things up. Uh, you couldn't see a character. It was kind of mocap. It also had two original musical numbers per half hour. <laughs> Uh, like you can look at you can watch them they're on YouTube. I will definitely um, be watching those and texting yeah. you later. Yeah, please. Which uh, episode did you write? Like if they're yeah, I know you it know was the called, name. I know the title. It was called Best of Enemies. Okay. Like you know, I'm not look. I was 19. That's okay. You uh, had a mock writing credit. And it was on fucking Donkey Kong Country. That's you. I truly, I can't imagine. You must have felt like you were a rock star. I would have. It was and also like I think I got paid like eight thousand dollars. Which at the time was like just you're a millionaire. Like, just yeah, exactly. I was like, oh my god, this is more money than I've ever yeah, seen yep. in one place. Uh, it, yeah, it was called Best of Enemies, uh, and yeah, it was. A, I think it was where um, Donkey Kong and King K. Rule. Uh huh. Uh, oh no, no, it was Cranky Kong and King K. Rule who are fighting over the crystal coconut, as you know. Totally, as you, I could tell. Uh, because decide you know that they have all this like history together, you know. And that maybe maybe they don't have to fight. Maybe their history brings them together. And then it turns out now they still do. They still want to fight over the crystal coconut at the end. So, and did that go for multiple seasons, or was it a one and done? I think they did a couple seasons. I think that's. I think I ended up only writing for one, and uh, but it went over pretty well enough to uh, just let me keep doing stuff. It was so the company was called Nelvana. They did. There's a huge Canadian animation company, and they just started throwing more work my way. It was great. It was, and I wouldn't turn down anything. I was writing with a partner at the time too. So it made it easy to just like take every single job. And I think we ended up writing 
like a hundred hours of TV or more. Were these in traditional writers' rooms? Th- these no. shows? No, no, they were all freelance. Uh, Got it. So you would just yeah. like get a script and then go off. You pitch. Got it. Okay. So you, you'd come in and generally what you do is you'd come in, you'd be like, and I, we pitched Donkey Kong. Like you'd come in and you pitch like 10 ideas. You're like, okay, what if, what if Cranky Kong and King K. Rule turns out they have this history together. They kind of have a bromance again. And then they decide to stop fighting. And then everybody else is like, oh my God, we got to get these guys fighting again because they're worse together. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, okay, that sounds great. Let's, okay. Yeah. We're by that premise. Now write an outline and you'd work on the outline with the, with the story editor. So it, it was a different title. Like the head writer was called the story editor back then. Uh, certainly in Canada, on that kind of stuff, uh, and then you do a d- couple drafts and a polish. But you, you know, you wouldn't really do much more than that. There was no room. Some sometimes the show would have a summit, like a couple days where they brought people in. But this was all like super low budget. There wasn't a ton of money to spread around. This is like Canadian television, so it's like everybody was freelance. You work on your own, and yeah, just send stuff back and forth. And do you, is it the way it is like in United States where it's like, and then once, you know, you get credits, like agents start chasing you or like, I guess what I'm leading up to is like, when did you get your first representative, whether that was a lawyer or a manager, an agent, whatever. So there are like five agents in all of Canada, <laughs> right? Like it's, I'm, I'm being uh, facetious. There's, there's more than that. There's, but there's 10. There's 10. Exactly. Okay. Right. Uh, so I'm, if I'm remembering right, um, we had a friend who had an agent who recommended us to meet with her. Uh, and she left, was just the process of leaving her agency and starting her own. So she signed us at the time. And it was great because it seemed like a big thing. If you ask me now, at the end of the day, how much work she actually got us, I think the number is probably like maybe one gig, if, if that. you know, Because the industry there was so small anyway. Everybody knew each other. Uh, and if you started writing... If you started being able to deliver decent scripts on time, you kind of could just work as much as you wanted. Incredible. You kind of didn't need an agent. Like she did the paperwork and stuff like this. But at the end of the day, I'm like, we paid a lot of money for probably something we didn't need. Yeah. Uh, because that industry, did, there was no, there's no barrier to entry. Like you could just call people. You could, like, that's how I got my gig. It was like, like you could email people. Uh, it was much smaller, you know, smaller business than it is here. Uh, but what I did do is I came down to LA, I think in here, here's how I know exactly when this was. Cause my, cause I was like, I wanted to write now bigger shows. So I wrote a Malcolm in the middle spec. And, uh, what I did is, uh, to find agents down here. Cause I was like, okay, I need an agent in Los Angeles. Uh, I, so I, I don't know if the WGA did this, but at the time WGC published a membership manual. Like not a membership, but like a, a book of members, yeah. right? You could look people up. They have it online now, obviously. But at the time, there was a book and you could look up and find all like, oh, you know, here's Matt's information. This is the kind of stuff he writes, a little brief bio. Here's his, his reps information. So I got that and just went through it and found all the Canadians who had U.S. agents and who their U.S. agents were and wrote, I think, 25 query letters, like mailed letters to those agents. Good for you, Simon. Yeah, saying who I, who I was and that, uh, you know, I've written a couple shows up here in Canada, but I'm coming down to L.A. in like two months, and I would love to meet with you and stuff like this. And if you want to read, I've got this spec, this spec, and I've got this Malcolm in the Middle spec that you should read. I had not written the Malcolm in the Middle spec yet. But I was like, we're sending the letters, and it's going to take them like three weeks to get back to me, and then I'll write, I'll write the script now, and then... I'll have it. And they, uh, one person, the U.S. Postal Service and the Canadian Postal Service worked much better than they usually do. And I think I had someone who emailed back because we sent 
I sent like email address and the letter. It was like, yeah, I'd love to see the milk in the middle spec. Send it down. It was like three days later. And I was like, oh. So I wrote uh, with my partner. We wrote a milk in the middle spec in five days. Wow. Which now I was like, why can't I do that anymore? Like I have hours. Like it was like uh, premise on Monday, you know, outline on Tuesday, script on Wednesday, script on Thursday, polish on Friday. And had like a 30 minute Malcolm Middle, which apparently came out well enough because it got us uh, an agent. Wow. At, uh, so we came down and we met with, I think of the 25 letters, I think I got like nine responses. Of the nine responses, a bunch of them were like, are you moving to Los Angeles? And I wasn't at the time. They're like, well, then we're not interested. Call us if you decide to move down here. And then there was probably about five who were like, yeah, yeah, yeah let's meet. So I met with five agents down here. Uh, and ended up signing with um, AMG, which was Mike Ovitz's management yeah. company at the time. Uh, and yeah, and signed with them. And then that exploded. And a couple of the, a bunch of the agents there left and formed this other company called the Gotham Group, which is still around today. Yeah. And I moved over with that because I just stayed with my guy over the Gotham Group and was with them for quite a while. Wow. Uh, Simon, yeah. that, first of all, I'm just the your your own uh, hustle is impressive, and I think that's the big lesson to be t- to be taken from a lot of this is uh, you make your own luck. I mean, obviously you you were a good writer, but you needed to do that. You know, you need to write query letters. You need to knock on doors and take your shot. And I really I applaud you for that. There was what's well, Canada? It was like either that, or I had to learn how to write like a medical procedure. <laughs> Right. Nobody wants you to know, do that. And, I and, couldn't do that. And well, and this is look, like I love Canada. I, obviously, it's was it's my home country. Uh, I w- I worked with the Writers Guild. I was on bargaining committees for years and years. Really support the Canadian screenwriting industry. But certainly at that time, the shows I were I I personally was watching weren't Canadian shows, which is unfortunate. I was watching Star Trek. You know, I was watching Malcolm in the Middle. I was wa- watching stuff that was coming out of America, and that was the stuff that captivated me more, and what that I was more interested in. In writing and doing it, we weren't doing a lot of genre stuff in Canada. So that's that was p- part of my push to come down here was like the things I wanted to do, the shows I wanted to write weren't being done at home, you know. Uh, so it it was like, well, I better start thinking about Los Angeles then. When did you move out to L.A.? Well, so here's the thing. The, I, if there's a, you know, a big mistake I made in my career it was not coming down here soon enough. So I for probably about, I'm going to say f- the first like, so my first trip down here to get the agent to get our agent was um, right after 9-11 because we had to cancel and re- rebook the first trip down because Whoa. 9-11 happened. Uh, so I think, that, and obviously, no, it was like, I think we were supposed to come down like the week after was the original plan. And obviously we were like, that's not a good idea right now. So it came down, I, I forget how, but like six months or eight months afterwards. Um, so that's when we started coming down. And then I started just coming down to LA, I would say twice a year, just to pitch. And that worked, that had benefits. Like I sold a series to Disney, you know, I was attached with, we, we got attached with a Canadian producer, this guy, Andy Knight, who was a huge famous, uh, animation director who had done, uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, sequel for Disney and stuff. And we got attached to a project with, that he was coming up with, wrote a Bible, wrote a pilot script, got it picked up by Disney television. We were like the first non- in non LA produced Disney television series, animated Disney television series for Disney. Was that your first like original pitch sale? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Get Ed is the name of the show. When you went in there with Get Ed, like, did you verbally pitch it or did you like have the script? And then you're like, if you're interested, like we'll meet and we can tell you more. How did, how did you, what was the process for that? Andy had this like, so here's, here's the truth of it. So uh, Andy Knight, really great director. had an animation studio in Toronto called Red Rover. And, uh, they did a lot of commercials and spots and stuff like that, as well as like longer stuff. But he wanted to get a series going and he had ties to Disney because 
he had done this Beauty and the Beast project. He had he had a commercial, I think it was for like Puma or Adidas or something like that, that he had done that for some reason hadn't gone, hadn't gotten picked up. But he had this awesome like 30 second trailer of this like cool ass like kid on a hoverboard going through this futuristic city making a delivery. It looked awesome. And he was like, Andy was the kind of director who was like, it wouldn't throw anything away. He's like, maybe this could be a show. And send it to Disney, and Disney was like, this looks amazing, because he was a really talented director, and it's really cool, uh, and was like, but what's what's the show? And at the same time, I'd been pitching Disney other stuff and meeting with them, and they were like, well, you're in Toronto. These other two writers are in Toronto. Why didn't you guys get together? So then we came together, invented the show off of Andy's reel, all the characters, the pitch, everything about these couriers in the future and stuff who ride these futuristic vehicles, brought that all back into Disney together and got the and got of ultimately a green light. Well, they, they picked up like a pilot script off the Bible on the pitch, wrote the pilot script. And I remember like, that was so nervous because they kept on being like, okay, what happens in the third season? And we're like, oh, I don't know, this this could stuff. happen. That's, yeah, stuff <laughs> could happen. And they they had this program where they, they I think they they had like, I think they, they, it was like, you know, say like 30 shows did Bibles and then like 10 shows did pilot scripts and then four shows did pilots. And we were one of those four. And I know one of the other guys, because uh, I ended up being friends with him years later, this guy, Kevin Monroe, was I, was one of the other shows. And we won out of the four and got the show picked up, which also might have been partially also because it was a Canadian production. So we were cheaper. We had like tax credits and stuff like this. No anyway, way. I'm saying because you guys had the best show. That's the story I want to I'm going with. We did 26 episodes, 26 half oh hours God. of that show. Uh there's like there's like fan fiction for it online. It's crazy. Simon, that this is incredible. <clears throat> Were you still, you were still probably fairly young at this point too. I would have been so this would have get it was was two thousand I want to say two thousand and four two thousand and five. Okay, so I would have been uh, twenty five. Oh my god! If yeah. I had sold and got a series order of twenty five, I would have probably been like a terrorist to deal with. I would have been like, I'm the genius. I, it, look, it was awesome. It was great. You know, the studio was downtown, not far from where I lived in Toronto. <clears throat> we were coming downtown. Uh, sorry, coming down to L.A. for meetings. One point, I was down for like two weeks, and they gave me an office on the Disney lot, like the Frank G. Wells building. Yeah, it was. It was, and here's the crazy thing: it was some giant executive's office who had left, but they're like, "It's free. You can just use it." So I had this like crazy office that had a button, a remote control that if you press the button, the door would close. <laughs> yep. And I was like, and had like looked out on the Seven Dwarfs building and stuff like that. So look, no, it was crazy. I was like this kid from Toronto, being like, "I've got a." office on the disney lot for two weeks borrowed okay. but still, still counts have you heard the the rumor that when it rains the 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 seven dwarfs look like they're peeing on that building because the architect got into it with disney in the end like is this just like lore i don't i've never heard you've that. never heard that no. okay it never rained when i was there. that's why i wanted to know because there's, there's we should a, go right now yes we need we need to if anyone is out there please let me know because that's like the big lore that whoever designed that building got into it with Disney in some fashion near the end of it and just made it so that it looks like they're pissing all over the building. I mean, which, that's that's incredible. I respect that. Yeah, me too. I'm dying to know. Um, okay, so you do get Ed. Like, wh- where do you go? Like, I, I, you have such an impressive and, and prolific IMDb. It's honestly impressive. The thing that I took from it and that I wanted to ask you about, you know, so many people – you know, in Hollywood would say like, oh, well, if you start writing kids stuff like you're pigeonholed and you can never you can never transition into writing adult stuff, which, as we know, is bullshit because, you know, uh, of Invincible and the boys diabolical and tons lots, of other lots stuff. of people do, too. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So how did you make the leap from doing what is traditionally 
not, and I don't want to say kid stuff because I feel like that's it. That's just like almost offensive, but into adult animation or what we refer to as adult animation. I mean, honestly, like in Canada, it was just about like taking the next gig. You know, it was like I was making a living at it, which is great. So for a long time, it was just like animation was the work that just kept on coming up and a lot of kids stuff. But like I did a live action puppet series for Nickelodeon, which was still for kids, but also was like really pushing the limits of what a kid's show could be. Yep. And actually would have been a much better adult show, this twisted puppet show called Mr. Meaty, which there, there's clips of that online. Every so often it comes up on Reddit because people are like, do you remember the show? It gave me nightmares, <laughs> which I take a great deal of happiness in. Uh, honestly, just writing pilots writing pilots and writing features. So even while I was doing like kids show and kids in animation show, I was writing uh, feature films, adult feature films, uh, big live action ones. Uh, I wrote this one called Marathon and this was with my partner at the time, which was this retelling of the Greeks, the Greek, uh, the, you know, the Athenian, when, when the uh, Persian empire attacked Athens and with the first marathon, which is like the soldiers running from the beachhead where the Persians landed back to the city to defend it when the Persians sort of came around. They did this two-pronged attack and stuff like this. So re- historical drama, I'd like inspired because I loved Gladiator at the time. So that, and then I, you know, wrote a couple, a really big sci-fi, like an Indiana, not, it was more like an Indiana Jones popcorn movie called Black, Sphere, Black Spear, which is based on like this legendary story about Genghis Khan and his Black Spear, which was unstoppable and stuff. And it was kind of like, a, it was, it, you know, and about the fixer sent to find it with this like, archaeology it was like it was a very indian i'm not saying it was 100 percent original no. but it was like an indiana jones you know romp kind of thing that's that, cool you know and then another historical epic so features and then an hour-long pilots and eventually enough people read those that i started you know getting work in that area uh and that just so you have you have to have the proof yeah right because i think it is very easy to get pigeonholed in one area you know, like now I get sent a lot of like superhero stuff, obviously, because I'm doing Invincible. Yeah. And it's like, I love superhero stuff, but I'm already doing Invincible, you know, so that's not necessarily the next project I want to do because I have that right now and it's great and I love doing it. Um, but it, I think it's is this, well, you know, this business, like people hire you for what you did most recently. Yeah. So it's it's the way to get out of it or the way to do other stuff is to, again, go back to that thing we talked about, like your, your finished, your currency as a writer is that finished script. Yeah. Whether it's a pilot or a feature or whatever else, is that that it's not an idea, it's not an outline, it's something somebody can read. Uh, so you just have to keep doing that. Absolutely. You know. And how how did you come to be involved with Robert Kirkman and Invincible and and uh, Amazon and you know basically the 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 house that that we all know and uh, love as Invincible? How did that come to be? Yeah. So how that came to be was uh, we got to know. Uh, that through our manager at the time, who's this guy, uh, David Alpert, who ended up becoming the uh, CEO of Skybound, forming the company with Robert. So we already had kind of an in to the company. Uh, and then we kind of did a, we wrote a pilot for them called Above, which is an hour long sci-fi pilot, which I'm actually, I still think is, is it came out really well, um, which is uh, which is an hour long sci- science fiction series. There's a Bible and a pilot for that about a, a, a US military missile submarine, like a nuclear missile submarine you know those ones that carry like like each one is capable of wiping out a continent they're the most dangerous machines humanity has ever made by far because each one carries like 12 nuclear missiles and each nuclear missile can carry like 12 warheads so they're they're insanely dangerous and they go underwater they can stay underwater for three months at a time and it was a story about one of those that is and they have to stay secret so nobody knows where they are like you know the the ships just kind of because they're they're a deterrent threat it's like 
the fact that you don't know where one is means that like if you're in an opposing country, like one could be right off your waters, right? And if it surfaces and hits you with missiles, you're done. So it was a story about one of those that gets this emergency call to surface because there's uh, astronauts from the space station are making an emergency descent. They're the only boat nearby to pick them up. Nobody else is clear. So they have to blow their cover, come up and pick up these astronauts that are coming down in the Soyuz from the space station. And they get there and they pick up these astronauts and like one of them is really badly burnt and there's some like weird stuff. And one of them has a flash drive she has to hold on to and she keeps secret. And then they notice that everything is falling from orbit. All our satellites, everything else, something is like disrupting everything in the in orbit and it's all coming down. So they think it's an attack. The submarine dives and then it's figuring out wait, what's happening? Because all contact with the surface stops. So it's like, wait, what's what's going on up there? And every time they try to surface, they get hit by something. There's, there's a, you know, an agent out there that is that is monitoring them and trying to get to these astronauts. So then and the astronauts aren't talking. So it's, it's the start of a mystery that would unfold over, you know, seasons of a TV show. That's cool. Uh, but we wrote that for Skybound. We took it out, almost sold it a couple times. Um, Maybe we'll take it back out at some point. Uh, but that's what got me invincible was that I'd written, I had the combination of like some hour long experience and an hour long pilot script that they really liked, a show running experience uh, in animation but, and also other live action experience on like Dark Crystal and some Canadian shows. And it was this like mixture of things that I think they were like, this could be a good fit for Invincible. And then also like the personal contact, like I'd already done work for Skybound. Uh, so I came in and talked to Robert about what I would do with Invincible and what he wanted Invincible to be, and we were copacetic. So was it an OWA where they were meeting people on it, or they just, like, you sort of had the in because of David and you knew Invincible was coming? Uh, you know what? I don't know if they met with other people. That's a, I should really ask that question. I would imagine they did, uh, but it was like, we we talked about, because they were talking about, like, maybe doing it live action or not, but the, the idea was, like, to do it as well as the books. Like, yeah. to do the, the book content, it had to be animated. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd have to have a budget of like $80 million per episode. And was it already set up at Amazon or was it? So Robert had an overall at Amazon. Got it. So it was it was part of that overall, which was certainly not greenlit or anything like that time, but he had money. They had money to do development on it. So uh, we hit it off uh, on what the project was. We are, we already knew each other, but we hit it off on what the project was, um, how, how it would unfold, our taste on it and everything like that. And he was really gracious because obviously it's one of his, yeah. most, you know, one beloved. of his beloved creations and stuff like this, but he was always like, "Look, I want it to be your thing too. I want you to be you to be really happy of it, happy with it." Um, so then he wrote a pilot. I wrote the second script and the Bible for the series, and then we pitched Amazon with all of that, and we got a we got a green light. We got really lucky. How long did that take the like green light process? Because Fairfax took forever, and so I'm curious. I mean obviously it's different with comedy and every project is different. And you guys had Robert Kirkman. It was based on beloved IP and yada, yada, yada. But like just the green light process where it was like, they told us like, Hey, Fairfax is going up for green light and now wait like two months or, you know, it was some absurd. It was truly like a summer, I believe. It was months, but yeah. I don't think it was many more than maybe two. Yeah. We, we delivered everything <clears throat> in June and then we found out like the first week of September. That's, that sounds about right. I'd have to go back and really check like when we submitted and when we pitched. And like, I, I remember I got a phone call and they're just like, we got it. We got the green light. It was like Robert and one of our producers calling and we we're just like, ah! you know, it was the, it was, it's an amazing call. Like, yeah. Now we're going to do this, you know? So like, also like, we're going to start soon. So like, let's get some writers. Let's pick the time for the writers. room. like, there was so much to do, obviously, yeah. as you know. Um, but yeah, it, I guess it would have been, I'm going to say like a month or two. Uh, but I could be wrong. I'd have to go back and check. 
Simon, even with something like Fairfax, which is like 23 minutes, when you're looking at these animatics, look at these takes, you know, is it the same in an hour long where you get like three bites at an animatic, three bites at the, at the, um, the, like take one, two, and three? And if so, my question to you is like, how do you not burn out? Because I feel like the notes process on something that's even 22 minutes being so tedious. I mean, there were three of us and also like EPs. So, you know, when we watched those and did notes over Zoom and COVID, it was it was very time consuming. And so when I watch episodes of Invincible, I'm like, holy shit, the process to even get this to be on my TV is like it must be a Sisyphusian task. How how did that how did that work? I mean, like you, yeah, you know the process that to go through it. I mean, <clears throat> I will say that like I've done comedy uh as well. I'm pickier at the comedy stuff because comedy is so much about timing, right? So that's when you're really like this look has to be perfect. The timing, like honestly, like we have to let's move this beat like three frames earlier and now it's funny. But if it was like three frames later, eh, it's not as funny, right? Like your timing. So I think with comedy, you have to be a little more granular. Uh, with our show, we are granular, but like it's a different kind of thing. Like a big yeah. action scene, like where Mark punches the other guy, like probably it can be uh, within a range and it's fine, right? We do have gags in a show that we will get in and I will be very particular about. But I think it's it's a, I, I feel personally that I have, I needed less fine detail adjustments on the show than comedy stuff I've done in the past. Uh, but really, honestly, it's it's the same thing. It's just like you sit down and you just do a pass on it. And it takes like for me to do a pass on an animatic is most of a day. Yeah. Oh, my God. And it, even if like it takes like four or five hours uh, and then I can't do anything. I like I'm wiped. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, so then it's just like email and stuff like that. Are you are do you guys still do them over Zoom? Uh, so we generally what we do is we get. Uh, for like an animatic pass, you mean? So like we get an animatic delivered and look, our directors, you know, we, have, we have an incredible crew, really great directors, great supervising director. Uh, and they do their pass first. So Got they're it. like, they're like, this is, this, we've, we've already put in a ton, we've put a ton of work into it. Like we've gotten it pretty, we, they think pretty great and they're always right. Uh, so, so time then for like Robert and I to come in and we don't really have any other EPs who give notes. It's really just Robert and I. Uh, Amazon gives notes, but that's that's kind of it. So it's not like we have all these other like on on Diabolical we had like so many partners. I can uh, only imagine. Yeah, this is like Robert and me, and that's it. And then Amazon notes, which come later. Uh, so we just watch it through and we just make notes uh, separately, and then we have a team that collates those notes, puts them all together, adds in Amazon's notes, and then we just have a big sit down meeting in person where we have the animatic up on screen and we go through all the notes and the directors are like, okay, so wait, what did you mean by this? And we're like, oh, well, we kind of, because this is going to come into play later, we kind of need to see the ship crash this way. And then some notes, our director's like, yeah, that that's going to take like four weeks to do. Do, <laughs> do you really need it? In some cases, we're like, yeah, sorry, we do need it. In other cases, we're like, well, what else could we do there? And then they're like, well, what if we did it like this? And we could show it this way, we could be really tight. We wouldn't have to redesign this. And we're like, that sounds great. Let's just do that. So it's this kind of give and take. Every is it's not a trade. It's not like a horse trade. It's not like nobody's trying to get out of work. It's yeah. it's like, how do we get to the best episode with the resources and the schedule and the time we yeah, have? Yeah, problem solving. You know. That's exactly what it is. And then we look at Amazon's notes and we discuss in the same way. So it's problem solving. Everybody's going in the same direction. But sometimes our, you know, our director is like, look, we could do this for you, but that means like two weeks that we don't have to do something else for you you know, that you want. So which, which do you want? Because we only have two weeks. You got to pick A yeah. or B or lesser versions of both or some smart way to cut around it and do it. 
Simon, how involved are you in choosing the music and the needle drops in the show? Because I was watching season two, episode one, and when Radiohead came on, I was like, Jesus Christ, A, I know what this cost. B, how did you get this? Like, I don't imagine Radiohead just like gives out their music. So like, what is the process like that for picking music? So one thing I, I, I can take a little bit of credit for is that music, I made that a big point of the pitch for season one. I was like, we're a premium show. We're an hour long adult drama. We need to have a really healthy music budget for needle drops throughout the whole season. And I did the same thing with Diabolical. We had like a we had a, in in terms of minutes even more money in Diabolical because because it was shorter. Um, so that was always a key point of the show in my head. And like you know, there were a couple songs even in that pitch process. Uh, like I always wanted Run the Jewels for the Mahler brothers, the Mahler twins. Uh, so that was like I had that before we even had the green light Amazing. and a couple other tracks that I was like, I want these specific tracks for these specific moments. That said, then we bring in a great music team, a really great music supervisor. And then the other stuff also becomes discussion. So yeah. what we generally we would identify, like I go through the episode and I find the spots that I think needle drops can, can would, would work. Sometimes they're in the scripts. Like we write needle drop placement in the scripts. If we already know, like, I'm like, Oh, we're going to do this big section. We're going to follow this character's backstory. It's going to be a montage. Let's put a great needle drop here. Do you do you write in the script needle drop here, or do you write in a specific song? Now I ask because Amazon Legal specifically was like, guys, stop writing specific music cues in here because then if you do a sound alike, there's legal recourse because we have a trace, a digital trace of that you wanted it to sound like Drake, blah blah blah. So we had to like expunge so many song cues right. from our show. Uh, no, I just put needle drop in, but I'm like, you know, a loud banging needle drop, something like high energy and fun or awesome. something like that. And then I communicate it verbally to our music team. Awesome. Kind of stuff. So then, uh, so we identify those moments. We make another document, which has all those listed out. Our supervising director, our directors of those episodes, they're of course invited to have ideas and stuff like this. And then our music supervision team goes away and usually comes back with like 10 ideas, yeah. like 10 tracks that they know they can get or that they think would be great here that fit our budget. In some cases we're like, look, we only have like two tracks in the song, go big. Like let's spend some cash. In other cases, we're like, eh, we got to save some money, so let's go cheap on these. Or it's like source music in a cafe. It's yeah. just music playing in the background. We're like, we do not need to spend a lot of money on totally. this. Um, and then they come back, and then we we go through the list, and uh, we pick the ones that we think are promising. Our editor cuts them in just to test them, yep. right? And we try a couple things, and sometimes we're like, this could kind of work. Let's start a little later. Let's move it this way. Let's play it all the way through or something like this. And we all kind of weigh in and then, you know, usually Robert and I make the final call. Uh, Robert usually just gives a thumbs up. Uh, and then we try to do the deal for the song. And once or twice, we being like, pick the song, everything is going great. And then our supervisors come back and be like, actually, sorry, we can, they're not, they're not licensing it right now. We're like, ah, so then we have to find an alternative. That's what I was going to, that's what I wanted to ask. Have you ever had to write a musician a letter to get a song? A couple times. Oh, and did you get said song? Uh, I've, I've done it three times and we got one of them and turned down the other two times. So I wrote, I can, I think. No, I, I was going to ask. Can I say, I probably. And if you find out you can't, I'll edit it out because I, I will share with you the same, this, the process of what we had. You to know do what? I probably, I probably can't say, okay. you know, I, you know I'll, tell, I'll tell you later. Okay. But, uh, uh, yes, I've written letters because a music supervisor has been like, a letter would really help. Yep. So there's one band that I had to write them a letter and be like, uh, we're not making fun of you with this song. I mean, like, it may look like it's a fun placement, but really it's because we love the song. We think the song sums up all the stuff. And I had to write a letter like that. In other cases, I just had to 
just, yeah, you just write a letter and be like, you're like, I'm a huge fan. Your music speaks to me. I think it will speak to our audience. And it's all true stuff. Like yeah. we wouldn't be asking for the song if we didn't love it. You know, totally. I didn't love it, but yeah, I've done it like three times. We wrote a letter to Lady Gaga because we needed uh, Shallow from A Star Is Born. She gave it to us. Oh my God, that's incredible. And by the way, like those calls were almost as important to us. Uh, th- like the call, like you got it. Like those calls were almost as big to us as the call when we found out the show was being greenlit. And then the other one, which was like winning the Super Bowl, was we wanted This Is America by Donald Glover and Childish Gambino for like the first 20 20- the first what is it, the first two minutes of our show and what came back from our music supervisors was is they don't ever license this song because everybody wants to use it in a super heavy-handed way and they just don't do it and i said well does it make any difference if my two friends from high school are his drummer and guitarist and they're like yes write him a letter so i wrote donald this letter letter that basically said i know everyone in your mother asks you for this song and uses it in such a heavy-handed way about like race and politics in america but this is a show about four kids and like X, Y, and Z. And if there is any way in the world you would let me use it, I would be forever indebted to you, blah, 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 blah. And the, our music supervisors called us a few days later and they're like, his manager wants to talk to you. I was like, okay. And so they're like, he's going to call you at three o'clock. So be near your phone. And I was like, okay. At 3.30, the phone still hadn't rung. And I was like, "This, I'm being fucked with. At like 3.43, the phone rang, and it was his manager, and he was like, I just wanted to make you sweat. Like, we're going to give you the song. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was fantastic. And it like made the uh, such a world of difference to me. So I have two things to say about that. Yeah. One, are you the only people who have gotten that song? What I have heard is that I believe um, Barry Jenkins used it in a trailer, but that was the only other time, and that was for drama. But it has been asked of them for comedy reasons for often and since, and they say no. That is so. That is incredible. Yes. Two. Here's a movie pitch for you. Yes. Yeah. Which is all of that just happened. Yes. You pitch it, and and you're like, I will be indebted to you for some time. And then it's a rainy night like tonight, <laughs> and your doorbell rings, and it's childish Gambino <laughs> on your doorstep, covered in blood, being like. You owe me. <laughs> you and then you guys dude. go on a crazy adventure for one evening that involves like mobsters, a lost yeah. tiger, you know, like He's like, do you have bleach and lie? I'm like, yeah. uh, no, but there is a Home Depot at the bottom. Yeah, of and he's floral. like, no, no, you're not getting rid of a body. And you're like, well, then what? And then that's that's this that's the movie. I so. love that. Yeah. I love that. Um so yeah, anyway, great music choice is I tip my hat to you, uh, because I feel like music is such an important part of all of this and really like tying all of this together and one of my old bosses told me that like oh i cheat all the time with music like when i'm really trying to get emotion across like you can cheat if you have an amazing song and i always thought about that i was like oh that's such a great point because it's so true and it can truly make or break a scene it's totally true and like you know the the uh filmmaker side of me wants to say like oh it should work without the music yeah uh the realistic side of me says oh no no it totally can and if a scene is maybe not quite working the right choice the right needle drop can communicate emotion that maybe you're not getting through other means absolutely make it work and obviously it's so it's like it can be so personal too i mean i think part and maybe you you felt this too when you were uh finding needle drops or fair packs is like but you have to resist also the temptation to just put in your favorite songs yeah. and the songs you like, which may not be appropriate for the show. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, one of my favorite bands is R.E.M. Grew up listening to them. Same. Uh, I have vintage R.E.M. shirts in my other room that oh, I'm happy great. to Oh, great. Me show too. You. Yeah, I've got, you know, vinyl and stuff. Love the band. It was a band, like, uh, the first band I listened to, I learned to listen to music with and was with me basically all through 
high school and through university and stuff like this. Uh, it's not really the band for Invincible. I have not found the spot for it. It's the band for the bear. I love it in the bear. Yeah. Uh, not really for our show, you know? And so you, you have to not do that sometimes because that's not this, like, it's not an excuse to just show your music yeah. taste to the world. Absolutely. You know, you have to find the right song. Once in a while, those things cross over and that's great. I was able to put friends of mine uh, who have this great band called Holy Fuck uh, <laughs> and they play, uh, I used one of their songs in episode two. Uh, it's the most watched clip on the internet uh, from good our for first you season. And good for them. It, but it fits perfectly. And, uh, you know, and I knew, because I was a little jiggly about it at first. I was like, ah, oh, but they're friends of mine. But they're a real, like they tour, they're a proper band and everything. So they're not like a small indie band or anything. Uh, but then our music supervisor for the episode was like, have you heard these guys? I think they'd be great for Invincible. And I was like, okay, now I feel justified. Now I can be like, yes, totally. I do think they'd be perfect for Invincible. Totally. I always wanted to use their song here. Uh, they're pals of mine. They're amazing. Let's just do it. Oh, God, that's awesome. That's so awesome. Um, so, Simon, like, what is it like? I mean, look, I, sure, it's great to have a show, but, like, Invincible is so beloved. There's a gig there's gigantic billboards everywhere. I was just on, what was it, Beverly today? Beverly in between Fairfax and the Brea, and there was a gigantic one over my favorite candy store, Soccer Bit. Uh, I don't know if you ever make your way over there. It's incredible candy. Uh, I... You know, when I when Fairfax came out, like there are sure there are people that like it, but like the people who like Invincible and the boys Diabolical and just the boys in general, like are super fans. And so what is that like to make something that really resonates with with the culture? It's a feeling I never had in Canada. <laughs> uh, no, it's good. I mean, look, uh, I, I got a little taste of it when I did Dark Crystal. Uh, with Henson stuff, because yeah. that obviously has a huge fan base too, a different kind of fan base, a smaller fan base, but still a very strong fan base that's been going for years. Uh, I mean, look, I'm I'm writing Kirkman's coattails here. Like the book was obviously hugely popular, and people love Walking Dead, and people love love his name. So I'm yeah. grateful that I'm able to sort of like draft behind him on this project. Uh, but I'm not gonna lie, it's great. It's like I look, all we want is an audience, yeah. right? At the end of the day, as people who make art. You know, and I think that's true of all artists. Like you write novels, you sculpt things, you paint, you do music. Like all you want is an audience. I mean, hopefully you do it even if there is an audience. Totally. Because you have to have that. Otherwise you're in, the, in it for the wrong reasons. So, and I did it for many years with with a very, very small audience or next to no audience in Canada. Um, but you do want an audience. You're, you're trying to communicate something. You're trying to communicate emotion or story or an experience or a feeling that you have through your show or your painting or your book or, or anything like that communication takes two people you know so you do or at least two people so you want to know that there's an audience out there there's an echo that's going to come back yeah so i feel immensely grateful that we you know on invincible we have a strong echo we have like we have a lot of people who really like the show which means two things one uh, people are able to enjoy the work i put in the show and the work that the other writers do the cast, the whole crew, like we're, we're doing something that people are enjoying and, yeah. and, and watching. Uh, and then two, we get to do it again. Yeah. Cause we have that audience. Right. Yeah. So I'm super grateful for this. It doesn't, you, well, you know, from you've worked in this business as long as I have, there's great shows that don't find an audience and there's terrible shows that do and everything in between. And there's never a guarantee. Uh, JJ Abrams has shows that crash and ball. So it's a bit of luck of the draw. So it's kind of like, and I feel like so much yeah. of you guys was word of mouth. Like in the beginning, like you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm misinformed, but I felt like Amazon didn't market the shit out of it. Some the same way that they do, like Mrs. Maisel, or 
you know, uh, and I feel like Fairfax got a nice marketing push in LA because it was COVID. It was really one of the only things that could be made because mm-hmm. it was animated. Um, uh, and so I, I guess what I say is like it is really resonating because people are telling their friends like you need to watch Invincible if you're not watching it. Yeah, I think so. I think it was one of the first shows I've done where people were like, oh, my parents love your show. And I'm like, do, do they? <laughs> it's so violent, <laughs> Really? <though. laughs> your parents? I mean, but no, I had a lot of, it was uh, it was really wonderful. I had a lot of people email me, a lot of old acquaintances and friends who were like, dude, I just saw your show and your name. That's amazing. I love it. Uh, we got really lucky. But like, yeah, word of mouth. I mean, like, I don't think, I don't know what Amazon spends. I yeah. like, I'm. They don't tell you anything. No, I'm privy to all our marketing meetings. So yeah. publishing, we have a great team that yep. works really, really hard for us. Uh, I don't think we have the same budget as advertising for the boys. And I can just say that because they have Nobody more does. billboards yeah. than us, which is great. I love the boys and they should have all the billboards yeah, in the world. They're the biggest show of like ever yeah. for Amazon. So yes. Which is great, but it's like, but we seem to do okay with what we have. So uh, yeah. So we're, again, very lucky. It could have gone many other ways and we just got very lucky that it went this way. Do you, in records, do you ever get, uh, intimidated when you're like, I have to record with J.K. Simmons or Stephen Yeun or Sandra or even Seth Rogen, like any of the heavy hitters that you have worked with, like, you know, because sometimes, you know, when we would get on a Zoom, I don't know if you, are you guys doing them in person now? We did all of season one in person. Okay. Uh, season two was pretty much all remote. Okay. And uh, now we're finally able to be back in person, although Great. we're still, we're just, we're not in a prime, we're not doing primary records right now. We're Got just it. doing ADR and stuff like that. Do so. you ever like do you a do you ever like pinch yourself like i'm giving notes to fucking jk simmons here or like uh, do you get in tip like do you ever fanboy like i would have moments where i'm like i cannot believe i'm talking to john mcwazabo like what 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 world do we live in this is crazy uh, yeah a couple times i mean like uh so intimidation so all of our cast is amazing they're yeah, all super you guys have lovely. such heavy hitters wow. uh, but they're all they're all amazing the only i remember having a conversation when jk simmons came in so one of the reasons we cast him was because of whiplash yep because we needed someone who could do who could be both like congenial and then also terrifying right for for nolan he's both he's a loving father and then yeah. he's also like the scariest thing in the world yeah and we were like jk can do that let's watch whiplash and he came in and i was like you know, like you're the only actor in our cast that I find terrifying sometimes that I'm still like this. And he's like, he's like, it's called acting. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know. But like, it was such good acting. It was so scary. I mean, you're going to throw something at me, but he never know. He's lovely. He's amazing. Yeah. Right? So no, our cast is incredible. Um, But yes, I do pinch myself all the time. I try, you know, I don't actually, I've never had a photo taken with our cast. I've yeah. never done any of that. I've tried to be really professional totally. that way. Uh, but I remember once we were recording Mark Hamill, I was in the show a couple times. I've and totally spaced. I was like, oh yeah, fucking Mark is on your show too. And he's incredible and lovely and just like really warm and, and wonderful. I can't say no nice things about him. Uh, and my wife was like uh, texting me after the record. She's like, how'd it go? Because she, she knew I was recording the hammer. I was like, it was amazing. It was lovely. He told the Star Wars stories. He was great and like super fun. And she's like, what would the 12-year-old you think of you right now? She's like, you just spent an afternoon with luke skywalker and i was like oh my god you're so right like it is kind of when you step back at it yeah because it's easy to get into it and we're like oh shit we got to get these words down we got to get them right and the acting and everything like this and and how do you direct mark hamill yeah. like who who am i to tell mark hamill to do it a different different way but like you have to sometimes it's not because he's doing it wrong but because you need something specific uh but then at the end of the day you're like holy fucking shit like this is this is insane and i think it's healthy to have 
a little bit of I again it leads you to think like you're like I'm really lucky I yeah. should have a lot of gratitude towards this maybe there's a way I can give back yeah. to other people uh cuz uh not everyone's so lucky so but yeah it is it is kind of insane and it's it's been wonderful and amazing and everyone's been incredible and I've learned so much from our cast uh yeah it's great Simon what is next for you before I let you leave like what is next if you had a magic wand uh, that that's two different questions. If you had a magic wand and they're like, Simon, you can have any piece of IP from anywhere, Disney, LucasArts, like take your pick, Nintendo. Like, is there anything where you're like, I would love to do a, you know, what, a, you know, a, a Cranky Kong origin story. Like, oh my God, Cranky Kong, like where he came, <laughs> like he used to be big and buff, I'm sure, right? Totally. Didn't always walk with a cane, no. had a long beard. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even sure gorillas grow beards, <laughs> you know, but um that's a really good question. I mean, like I've got, I've got my play is full with invincible obviously yeah. right now. Cause we're still, still working, doing more of that. But, uh, man, um, I mean, obviously everybody wants to, I like, I have original ideas. I would love to sell. Yeah. I'd love to do some more, you know, some, I'd love to sell a feature. I've written a lot of features. I've gotten paid to write features, but I've never had a feature made. That would be, that would be also that. I, I don't know if it's for you, but like. To buy a ticket to my own movie. Exactly. Is the, the ultimate that and to bring my parents to a movie premiere is. I mean, it's also kind of the reason we, I think we all yeah. like obviously want to get into the business. When I was starting this, it was movies. It yeah, movie, TV. TV was like the B team yeah. when I was growing up. Like, sure, there were shows like Friends and Seinfeld and Sex and the City, but like up until, you know, Netflix made House of Cards, TV was thought of as like, well, you, you, the big boys make movies. Exactly. So to do like a full like Hollywood movie, and I, and I realized like obviously we're both in a very privileged position to be able to say that, to yeah. say this, because we're, both have been very lucky in our careers and, you know, again, grateful for that. But yeah, I like a big Hollywood movie would be incredible just for the experience of doing that. Totally. So maybe, maybe someday. Is there any actor other than you got to look for Skywalker? Is there anybody else like that you just like are dying to work with? Oh my God. I mean, we're so lucky with our cast. I know. I'm like trying other people who like, I know it's a weird question and puts you on the spot. Cause you're like, great. Now I have to like be like a Rolodex of actors in my head. It's, it's a, it it may not be an answerable question, in which case I'll just cut that part from this. <laughs> I, I don't have a clever uh, answer for it right off, That's okay. right off the top. But uh, Margot Robbie, I think she's incredible. Yes, she is. Uh, I love the Barbie movie. The Barbie movie was great. Where I, the first thing that I really killed myself for was uh, I, Tonya. I thought she, she was, was fantastic really in that. In that. So. I love that movie. Yeah. I thought that movie was, it was, you know, we talked about the best Lego movie. I thought this was a, that was the best Tonya Harding movie possible it broke the floor it was just so entertaining so fun i was like oh my god this is how you do a really great biopic well simon on behalf of all of us who are fans of invincible thank you for all that you do for continuing all this hard work and obviously i know it's robert kirkman as well but uh you have fans all over the world and we look forward to seeing what you do next and thank you for coming to the canyon thanks so much anytime no problem thanks, simon. thanks for having me